Alexander the Great, many of you have heard of him or have studied of him, reigned during the 4th century as the king of Macedonia, and he created one of the largest empires in history, all by the age of 30. Makes you want to ask the question to yourself of, what have you done lately? All by the age of 30. His death was even significant because it marked really the beginning of the Hellenistic period, where Greek culture started to become the norm throughout the empire and throughout the known world. And we see much of that influence as we read the scriptures with Jesus and the biblical authors often referring to it and addressing it throughout their writings. Well, there is this story that has gone around that's become quite famous about Alexander, and whether or not it's true ultimately is debated, but it is an incredible story nonetheless. He once had a general whose daughter was getting married, and because he appreciated this general so much, he offered to pay for his daughter's entire wedding. All right, so talk about a burden lifted off of the bank account, to have your daughter's wedding completely paid for. And so you can imagine what all went down with this wedding. Being a general in the world's largest army, yeah, the world's largest army, you can imagine all the different people that were coming to this wedding, right? Dignitaries, politicians, all the pomp and the circumstance of high society. This was a daughter of a general in the greatest army throughout the known world. And so after they're done throwing this massive Wedding with food and drink and entertainment for everybody. The general gives Alexander's steward the bill. And so the steward looks at it in shock because it was absolutely enormous. And so he takes this bill up to Alexander. And thinking that Alexander is just going to get upset or maybe even just be in downright shock at its price tag, Alexander smiles and he says, pay it. Don't you see, by asking me for such an enormous sum, he does me great honor. He shows that he believes that I, his king, am both rich and generous. When our text today, we're reminded that our God is not a begrudgingly stingy God. He is both rich and he is generous with his riches. His generosity toward his children ought to drive us to persevere in prayer whenever it's difficult. His generosity really emboldens us to pray. We don't come to him sheepishly. We can come to him confidently, expecting him to answer because he is not just rich, but also generous to all who call upon him as their father. And so turn with me to Luke 11, which is exactly what we're going to see there. Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13 in the parable of the friend at midnight. Luke 11, 5 to 13, the parable of the friend at midnight. For any of you, any of you who are new with us, we have, are just continuing our series in the parables this summer, and we've learned that parables are wisdom stories that illustrate a spiritual truth about God's kingdom. They teach us about the nature of God's kingdom and how that kingdom operates And that his kingdom is ultimately centered on his king, who is his son, Jesus. Parables are meant to simultaneously confront unbelief in Jesus' audience, while also revealing Jesus' glory to those who are able to see it. We've been kind of referring to parables as those things that conceal 
spiritual truth to those who cannot spiritually discern it, and they also reveal spiritual truth to those who are spiritually discerning of these things. And so that's the hope, ultimately, for this series, is that it would instruct us on how to live as citizens of God's kingdom, but also that it would actually reveal to us the glory of Christ so that our lives would be lived gloriously for him. So let's read Luke chapter 11, verses 5 to 13 together. Luke eleven five to 13. Jesus is speaking here. He also said to them, Suppose one of you has a friend and goes to him at midnight and says to him, Friend, lend me three loaves of bread, because a friend of mine on a journey has come to me, and I don't have anything to offer him. Then he will answer from inside and say, Don't bother me. The door is already locked. My children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who who ask him. All right, so our text, I think is important to know, is given to us in the context of Luke 11, 1 to 4, right? Those first four verses of the chapter. And in that passage, we find that famous Lord's Prayer. Jesus' disciples see him praying, and seeing him pray makes them want to be instructed on how to pray. It's a reminder that we want our own prayers to provoke others to want to learn how to pray. And so Jesus learns or lays out really a pattern and an outline for how they're to pray to their father. And in this outline, we begin to see a priority to their prayers, right? It begins with God's name being honored and then their needs being met. That's the the father's name, the kingdom, and all those things ultimately take priority over our daily bread, forgiveness of sins, and temptation. But this prayer isn't some ritual, as we're going to see, right? Say these words and you get what you want, right? As if there's some formula to prayer. Instead, our prayers reflect really our reliance upon God. And so Jesus gives them a parable to teach them about persevering in prayer, which is what our passage is about. And so our text breaks down really after he teaches them on how to pray and really the pattern of prayer. Now he's giving them really the impetus, the motivation to pray, And our text breaks down really into two parts. In verses 5 to 8, we've got the parable right there, as we just saw about the friend at midnight. In verses 9 to 13, we've got the application of that parable. And the point that Jesus is making in this parable, I think, is this. We are to pray persistently because our Father gives generously. That's the point that I think Jesus is making. We're to pray persistently because our Father gives generously. 
We pray persistently because our Father gives generously. And that's really just going to break down into our two points. Pray persistently, our Father gives generously. So pray persistently is point one. Point two is the Father gives generously. But I'm not going to start there with our points. What I'm going to do is I want to start off by just giving an explanation of the parable in verses 5 through 8. I want to do the very thing that Jesus is doing right here in the Gospel of Luke. Explanation of the parable, and then the two applications, which are our two points, right after that in verses 9 to 13. So let's look at the parable in verses 5 to 8. Jesus puts his disciples right here in the story. So suppose you've got a friend and you go to him at midnight because a friend of yours is on a journey and he's come to you and you don't have any food to offer your friend. According to first century hospitality, hosts were expected to provide a welcome to their guest. It would have been an insult to have nothing, no food, no nothing for this friend, for this guest that is visiting you. As rude as it is to go to your friend at midnight, it's even worse having nothing to offer your guest. It would have brought shame on the host. And not only that, it would have actually brought shame on the community. Because first century hospitality at that point in time was a communal affair. And so he has to seek out another friend and inconvenience that friend for some bread in the middle of the night. Like any of us, they get woken up in the middle of the night for anything, right? This friend isn't happy about it. He says in verse 7, don't bother me. The door is already locked, and my children and I have gone to bed. I can't get up to give you anything. Now, we can relate to this, right? You've probably received a late-night call in bed, see your phone going off. If you weren't smart enough to actually put it on silent, you've probably heard your phone going off or it's on vibration. And so you've got your phone constantly going off, and you look over and you're like, oh, that can wait, right? I can call them back in the morning but they keep calling you back over and over and over again until finally you say, you know what, I probably need to pick it up. It's probably an emergency. This person would not be calling me this many times in order just to get a hold of me. So finally, because she keeps calling, you pick up the phone, right, knowing that it's important. It's even more inconvenient, though, from something like that. It's even more inconvenient for this friend who probably lived in a one-bedroom house. So not only would that wake you up in the middle of the night, right, and inconvenience you, but for the person in the story who's actually the friend living inside the house, it would have woken up the rest of the house because this was a one-room house. And so he's getting up, having to go talk to this guy. Everybody else is waking up, and now everyone is up in the middle of the night. This would have been even more inconvenient for them. Then Jesus says this in verse 8. I tell you, even though he won't get up and give him anything because he is his friend, yet because of his friend's shameless boldness, or I think a clearer translation right here would be because of his friend's desire to be without shame. I think that's a clearer translation. Because of his friend's desire to be without shame, he will get up and give him as much as he needs. The point on the parable right here turns on the attitude of the man inside the house, not the man outside the house. Because he's going to relate it to God and God's own honor and God's own name, I think, as we see. And so this man inside doesn't want to be shamed for not giving his friend what 
guest ultimately uh, is asking for, what this guy is coming to him and asking for. So not only does the man who has the guest coming to his house not want to be shamed, but because this is a community affair, the guy who's inside the house being asked for bread to get this man bread, he doesn't want to be shamed either and seen as stingy and have shame within the community, right? Don't forget, this is an honor-shame culture. There's a commitment to hospitality. And so it would bring shame on him and on his own family to not get up in the middle of the night just to give his friend these three loaves of bread. To be woken up in the middle of the night is bad, but the shame that actually results from not getting up and just telling your friend off, that would be even worse in this community. The point that Jesus is making is not that we can shame God into answering our prayers. That is not the point of the parable. Instead, if this disgruntled friend will get up in the middle of the night, I think this is what it's getting at. If this disgruntled friend is willing to get up in the middle of the night to give his friend some bread, then how much more will the father answer his children's prayers when they keep calling out to him? God has committed himself to his people by covenant. He is faithful and trustworthy to uphold his promises to his people. And not doing so would bring what? It brings shame on his, on his name, not upholding his end of the covenant. And God, as we know from the Old Testament, keeps both ends of that covenant. This is why Jesus taught his disciples to begin their prayers in verse 2 with what? Father, your name be honored as holy. I think he's pulling it off of verse 2 right there. And that's our first concern in prayer because God's first concern is upholding the honor of his own name. If not, then our daily bread is not going to be provided. Our sins are not going to be forgiven, and we won't be protected from the temptation and run headlong into it. But because God has proven himself trustworthy to answer our prayers and to uphold honor to his name, then what? In verses 9 to 13, ask, seek, and knock. So point number one, pray persistently. We get the first application. Jesus begins applying this parable by giving his disciples three commands that are present continuous verbs, right? Meaning that ask, seek, and knock aren't just one-off actions that we do and we just kind of move on. These are things that are to be done continuously throughout our lives. Jesus is commanding us not to do, Jesus is commanding us to do this continually whether we feel like praying or we don't. These are commands. We're obligated to them. It's our responsibility all the time, to pray. It's also important to see the escalation between each of these verbs right here. We go from asking to seeking and to knocking, right? We ask for help, then we seek out help, and then we start pounding on the door desperate to get help, much like the friend at midnight. And so the very need for persistence in prayer actually shows implicitly, I think, in this text that God may not answer our prayers immediately. He may not answer them immediately. We wouldn't need to persevere in prayer if every prayer was just answered by God right on the spot. We wouldn't need that. It's a reminder that prayer isn't automatic. It's not magic. It's not some ritual where we repeat the same words and we just get an automatic response every time. Treating God like some kind of cosmic genie that just doles out what we need, when we need it, at the moment that we utter that prayer. 
the result of this way of thinking actually is really devastating, right? Because no longer is our relationship with God personal. It actually becomes transactional. No longer do we worship the giver of all good gifts. We worship the gift itself. God merely just becomes a means to our ends whenever we treat him this way. And when a prayer seemingly goes unanswered, what happens then? We're devastated. We begin to doubt God and his goodness to us. Jesus' brother James warns us about this in James chapter 4, verse 3. You ask and you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. So clearly prayer isn't about us getting what we selfishly want. That's not what prayer ultimately is about. It's not transactional, but is an expression of our trust. That's what prayer is. It's not transactional. It's an expression of our trust. Prayer is the expression of our faith in response to our knowledge of God. I think that's a good, just clear, working definition of prayer. It is the expression of our faith in response to our knowledge of God. So because we believe God to be sovereign, to be holy, to be good, to be trustworthy, then we what? We pray. We pray. God has proven himself faithful to do what he says. Therefore, we pray. And so prayer isn't about ritual. It's actually about reliance, independence. Prayer expresses trust in God when that job falls through or our bank account takes a hit or a family member gets sick. Prayer expresses itself in trusting in God in all circumstances of life. Like the friend at midnight, he didn't ask his friend nonchalantly. Like, hey, you got any bread in there? No, he goes to him desperately, right? He goes to him in dependence upon him to be able to provide for him. This is why prayerlessness is rooted in self-dependence and self-love. Prayerlessness is rooted in self-dependence and self-love rather than reliance on God. If God just gave us whatever our heart desired, there would be no need to depend upon him like our lives depended on it. Absolutely not. Friends, God will not waste our prayers by treating them like a mere transaction. No way is God going to treat our prayers that way. What's at stake is our intimacy with God in prayer. Though our salvation is secure, our intimacy with God may be lacking. But how does the fire of greater intimacy move from an ember to a raging fire, but ultimately through prayer? That's how intimacy gets stoked in the relationship with God. We need to persevere in prayer because naturally as sinners, we are absolutely terrible at prayer, naturally. And so how do we persevere when we don't desire to pray? When we don't get the answer that we wanted from God? When we're in seasons of spiritual dryness, how do you persist and persevere in prayer when you're in that season? Well, the first thing I want to give you, I'm going to give you four things. The first of which is to trust God's promises. So number one, trust God's promises. Don't just remember God's promises. You need to trust them. (laughs) It's one thing to call it to mind. It's another thing to employ it in your heart in trusting in him 
whenever you remember it. So look at how Jesus motivates and encourages his disciples right here. He gives them three commands, doesn't he? Ask, seek, knock. Okay? Then in verse 10, he gives them the ground or the basis of it. He says, why do you ask, seek, and knock? Because everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. You persist in prayer because God has promised to answer. That's why. He's promised to answer you. When we pray, we should do so confidently, expecting God to answer in the best and wisest way possible. Yes, that clarification at the end is very important. He's going to answer in the best and wisest way possible. And so when you don't desire to pray, you trust God's promise to answer when you call. You argue his promises and character back to God and who he said that he is and how he will do his will in the end. After all, he's entered into a covenant relationship with you through his son. The honor of his name is at stake in answering your prayers according to his will. So Jesus is giving us these, pro- these promises right here to provoke you and I to pray, to get on our knees, and to go before our Father in heaven. So pray confidently, pray expectantly that God is going to answer whenever you cry out to him. And yet, as you do, the second thing that is extremely important, and is the caveat to this, is to remember prayer's conditions. Remember prayer's conditions. So trust God's promises. Secondly, remember prayer's conditions. Jesus often will use short summaries like this one to encourage his people to pray. Ask, you will receive. Right? That's simple enough. And certainly, Right? We don't want to diminish this encouragement. Right? We're supposed to feel that encouragement to pray. So I don't want to diminish that by giving the caveat, but it is important to mention. And so that encouragement really should be a catalyst to get us on our knees to pray. But one threat in our prayer life is really treating verses 9 and 10 in isolation from other texts on prayer. So believing that God will just give me whatever my heart desires. That's one way that we could read this text and take it and just run with it. Right? There are many heretical teachings that come off of that uh, understanding alone. And so we need to not read verses 9 and 10 in isolation. We have to read it in, in relationship to all the other texts on prayer. I love how R.C. Sproul puts this into perspective right here. He says, Sometimes the immature Christian suffers bitter disappointment, not because God failed to keep his promises, but because well-meaning Christians made promises for God that God himself never authorized. And so to protect us from disappointment leading to greater prayerlessness, we need to remember these conditions for effective prayer. What are some of those? Jesus says to his disciples in John fifteen seven, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you want and it will be done for you, right? What's the condition there? If you remain in me, and my words remain in you, which means that when you pray, you have the words of Jesus coming to mind when you ask whatever you want. Your wants are so aligned to Jesus' words that those are the very things that you are asking for. The apostle John right here tells us in 1 John five fourteen. This is the confidence that we have before him if we ask anything 
according to his will, he hears us. The point is that not everything that we ask represents God's will or Jesus' words remaining in us, right? It's not that everything that we ask for represents God's will or Jesus' words remaining in us. But we can be confident that if we do ask according to these things, he will give them to us. And so we know God's revealed will is his word, right? This is why we've put the scripture references, you'll notice, there in the member directory. We're, what have we done? Oh my goodness, I left it in my house. You've got to be kidding me. We left, so we put the scripture references right, in the back of the member directory for you to be able to take those scripture references and to pray those for one another, pray for members within this church. And so part of what we're trying to do right there, right, that is clearly the revealed will of God. And if there are things that you don't know to pray for one another, these are wonderful ways to be able to pray for others within our church. It also, I think, is an encouragement to get to know one another within the church so that you actually do know how to pray for one another. But we also know that God is, he has a sovereign hidden will that's not been revealed to us. This is what Paul talks about in Ephesians 1 verse 11, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. We only know his hidden, his, yeah, his hidden will in hindsight. We, know, we only know it in hindsight. And so yes, we pray about everything, trusting that God always answers in the best and wisest way possible according to what we truly need. And though you may not get the answer that you want or thought best, you can trust that God will always give you what is ultimately for your good and for his glory. He will give you what's for your good and for his glory. That may mean that he's actually going to withhold certain things from you in order to protect you and give other things to you in order to provide for you in ways that you least expected. He will often do that. Knowing these conditions are going to help us to prevent really discouragement and will ultimately help us to align our will to God's. As it's been said, every prayer is really just a variation on the theme, your will be done. The third thing that we need to remember in persevering in prayer is to learn from God's people. So how do we persist in prayer? How do we persevere? Learn from God's people. Inevitably, there are going to be others who are further along than you in their prayer lives. One of the wisest things that you can do is just to get around them and to pray with them and to listen to them pray, right? Isn't isn't this how, ultimately, how this whole passage began, this whole chapter 11 in Luke even began? What were the disciples doing? They were listening to Jesus pray. And hearing Jesus prayer, or hearing Jesus pray, provoked them to want to learn how to pray. And so one of the things that you can do to actually persist in prayer is just get around people that may be a little further along than you in their prayer lives. Get around them. Listen to how they pray. By doing so, you actually begin to learn about the kinds of things that you need to be praying for and that you can pray for yourself, that you can pray for others. You begin to learn how their prayers are saturated with Scripture and praying the will of God for people. Doing that is going to help to teach you and instruct you on how to pray. And then finally, number four, pray, pray, and pray. (laughs) How you persist in prayer is by praying. I think that's what we're, we're supposed to see right here. 
how you persist in prayer is just by praying. In verses 9 and 10, Jesus is showing us that we persevere in prayerlessness by praying. Prayer begets prayer. My wife often told me, you know, sleep begets sleep. We've got to get our son sleep. Sleep begets sleep. It's the same thing with prayer. Prayer begets prayer. If we don't get an answer immediately, Jesus tells us that it's all the more reason to pray. And so often, we forfeit the help that we could receive by neglecting the very means of God's grace that he's actually given to us to provide us what we really need in those moments. It's a reminder that our Father's ear is open 24-7. At no point does he kind of just flip over, over the sign and it just says, sorry, we're closed, right? The Lord's ear does not do that. It's open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Our all-sufficient all God does not sleep. Our prayers never infringe upon his privacy or interrupt him while he's working. They don't annoy him as we are continually asking him to meet our needs. Our God can receive and answer prayer at any time. And so pray persistently at any time, in any place, with any circumstances going on in your life. Pray. Pray persistently. Are you facing the threat of losing a job or do you need a job? Pray. Do you need wisdom in parenting and disciplining your child? Pray. Are you and your spouse arguing a lot lately? Both of you need to sit down and pray. Are you seeking to be hospitable to your neighbor? You're wanting to invite them over to these small group studies throughout the week. Have you even thought to pray before you've done that? Are you battling anxiety because of market volatility? It's got your portfolio in a mess and it's threatening your retirement. That's legitimate. Pray. Sleepless nights, over and over and over again, pray. Do you hate flying and you're about to go on a flight? Pray. Do you not like driving at night? Pray. All of life lived in prayer to God. We pray because God answers our prayers in the wisest way possible. Prayer is never a wrong response to the circumstances of our, of our lives, ever. <laughs> At no point is it. In fact, as you grow as a Christian, you feel more needy with each passing day. But what will really motivate us to pray persistently? What is it? that is going to be serving as a catalyst to launch us into prayer. It's point number two. Our Father gives generously. Right? So we pray persistently because our Father gives generously. Verses 11 to 13. To encourage his disciples to persist in prayer, Jesus gives them the reason for such persistence. And he does so by illustrating the Father's generosity with a lesser to greater argument there in verses 11 and 12 or 11 to 13. He says, What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? Now, the snake and the scorpion is meant to symbolize what is evil during that day, let alone something that will ultimately bite you or sting you, which is never good. <laughs> so, the obvious answer to this question is no father is going to do that. No normal earthly father, and Jesus says, even, the, even you who are evil wouldn't do that. Right? The obvious answer is that no normal father would give their child that. Jesus makes his argument, though, in verse 13. If you then who are evil, which means that you're sinful, 
You then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your, to your children. How much more will the heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? Jesus is saying if earthly fathers who are sinful normally want to give their children good things, how much more? Is our heavenly father committed to giving his children what's good for them? There is no father on earth who is more eager to give something good to their child than our heavenly father. There is no father more committed to caring and loving, nor even has the resources at his disposal to be able to bless their child than our heavenly father. There is no earthly father who is able to protect and to provide better than our heavenly father. None compares to him. And yet, how they father often foreshadows his fatherly care. The logic, right? This logic of prayer reshapes our perspective of it. It reshapes our perspective of it. It shows us that what's essential for prayer is understanding who we're praying to. It's why Jesus taught his disciples to begin how? Father. In their prayer there in verse 2. Prayer is not transactional because prayer is highly relational. And sadly, as God's children, we get ourselves into the rut of viewing him as merely, really, just a judge rather than our father. And in doing so, we begin to approach him with feelings of guilt, feelings of shame, coldness, rather than actually the warmth of fatherly love that he dispenses to all his children. We approach him thinking that he's tired of hearing from us because, well, we're coming to him with our sin again, rather than actually delighting to hear from us as our father. But brothers and sisters, have you forgotten the good news of the gospel as it relates to prayer? The good news of the gospel in your view of prayer. God can only be your father if you've been made his child through his son. Because of our sin, we should have received the snake and the scorpion in this passage. That should have been what we were given, was the snake and the scorpion. But instead, Jesus received their bite and their sting on the cross so that our prayers may not be heard, or so that our prayers would be heard, and his prayer actually go unanswered. On the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me. Jesus' prayer went unanswered so that ours wouldn't go unanswered. He received silence so that we could receive salvation. And now we can address God as our Father because Jesus is our Savior through repentance and faith. The one who relates to us as judge because of our sin now relates to us as Father because of his Son. Only through Jesus' death and resurrection do we actually get unhindered access to God as our Father. Only through him is that ear of the Lord open at all times. But not all actually have this unhindered access. We're told throughout the scriptures that God does not grant the request of the wicked. He hears it, but he's not going to grant it. We see in Isaiah 59, too, that their sins have hidden God's face from them so that he does not hear their request. Friend, if if that's you, recognize that if you're living in unrepentant sin, professing to follow Jesus but not living like you actually do, then understand that God will not receive your request when you cry out to him. 
he's not going to receive it. However, there is one prayer, though, that God will receive from you. And it is a prayer of repentance. It's coming and confessing your sins to him and crying out to him in forgiveness, asking for for, for the forgiveness of sins. Repent of your wickedness and trust in Christ as your Lord and Savior. And God will hear your request and he will grant you eternal life. You will go from one who views him just as a judge to now viewing him as your father and you are his child, his son, his daughter. We can only relate to God in prayer as our father if we've been made his child through his son. And so brothers and sisters, this reshapes our view of prayer. Our father's heart is naturally disposed to us in love and generosity. We heard this in our scripture reading just a moment ago from James chapter 1, verse 5, where it says that if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives what? Generously and ungrudgingly. Our father is not like that friend inside the house who begrudgingly just forks over the bread to his friend, just gives him what he needs. That's not our God. And praise God that how we feel toward him when we pray doesn't actually dictate how God feels toward us. How we feel when we come to God in prayer, when you are spiritually dry, right? That doesn't actually dictate whether or not God's going to answer you or not. Praise God for that. You still have the responsibility to pray even whenever you don't feel like praying. And no matter how bad or how good you feel, that does not dictate whether or not God will answer. The Father receives our prayers in the name of his son Jesus. We don't come to the Father in our strength. We come to him in the strength of his son. This gives us ultimately confidence to be able to pray because we know that God has dealt generously with us through his son. Our Father is not cautious at all in his love toward us, but he multiplies his generosity to be able to match every need of ours in Christ. And so when you pray, remember that you're coming before your loving and generous heavenly Father who longs to give good gifts to his children. He is our focus in prayer, not us ultimately. As we see in verse 13, what is that good and generous gift? But the Holy Spirit. God has given us our greatest need, which is the gift of himself dwelling within us in the gift of his Holy Spirit. The one that God promised long ago who would dwell in us and write his word upon our hearts is now generously given to us in Christ. The one who convicts us of sin, who comforts us in our affliction, who conforms us into Christ's image, who empowers us to be able to live a godly life in obedience to him. If we're going to keep Jesus' commands and live according to God's will, then we need to pray for the Spirit's help in doing so. Because by the Spirit's help, our will comes into alignment with the Father's will. God knows exactly what you need when you need it. How much more the gift of the Holy Spirit that he has given to you to be able to provide for every need in every circumstance that you find yourself in. Well, far from giving us what we might selfishly want, our Father gives us what we desperately need. So pray persistently because our Father gives 
generously. Alexander the Great's general knew him to be both rich and generous to meet the cost of the wedding. But do your prayers actually reflect that belief that God is both rich and generous as a father is to his children? Let's pray together. Father, we give praise to you that you are a generous God, that you are our Father. Lord, there is nothing that we have done in order to try to get ourselves into your family, but Lord, by your grace alone, you have brought us into your family through Christ, and we give praise to you for that. Lord, we praise you for the gift of prayer, the very means that you've given to us to be able to accomplish your will even in our lives. Lord, we praise you for that gift, and we ask that we would employ it persistently, coming to you as our Father who gives generously. And so, Lord, we pray that we would persevere in prayer, trusting in your good promises, being reminded of those conditions learning from one another and how to pray, and then praying all the time, no matter where, no matter when, and no matter what is going on. Lord, we pray that we would be a church that would be characterized by prayer. And Lord, that we would live lives that glorify and honor you because they are soaked and washed, ultimately in prayer. Lord, we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.